there, the ultimate quest that we might know him. How do we do that? How do we know him? A lady was visiting a seaside town and she was enthralled with the story of an old fisherman, old sailor. As he told about the time that he almost drowned, was swept overboard and went down three times before someone reached over and grabbed him by the hair and pulled him up and got him out. She said, uh, you must have seen the, the, your life pass before your eyes as you went under the third time. And he said, well, I presume I did, but my eyes were closed and I didn't, I don't remember seeing anything. And I think, you know, maybe that's how we kind of go through our lives. Our eyes are closed and we're really not seeing what we need to be seeing. And John here, in his entire letter here, tells us to open up our eyes. Take a look at what's around us. Take a look at reality. And so as Christians, we see life with clear eyes because we're seeing life through spiritual eyes. And that's really why we can know, and as John says, we can be confident about what we know. And this has nothing to do with how smart we are. It has nothing to do with our intellectual ability, our deep inside, our great amount of study that we go through. It's a gift from God. It has to do with God gifting us, as we spoke about last week. We, we saw that we've been taught by God. We have this, this knowledge in our head. We have this head knowledge, what, I've, what I often refer to as book knowledge. We've been taught by the book, through the book here. And therefore, we no longer live. We know that we no longer live in this state of sin, this dominion of sin. We know we're children of God because we read in the scriptures and we're told we are children of God. We know it in our brains. We know it in our head. We have that head knowledge. And then further, we're given this very clear view of the world. This is what the world is like. This is how, as you walk through your life, this is reality. This is what the world is, is like. We no longer live in this kingdom of darkness, this kingdom of sin. We, we no longer are that way. And our experience confirms this. When we sin, as Christians, we don't like it. It makes us uncomfortable. We fret about sins. I have people come to me every week fretting over sins in their lives. And that's a good thing. It, it confirms this truth, this truth that you are God's child, that, you know, this isn't the way I'm supposed to be living. And this clear worldview that God gives us, these two camps that we have, we are the children of God and the world lies in the, as he said here, in the lap of the evil. The world's in this condition of in bed with evil. And so it doesn't surprise us when evil rears its head up, when bad things happen. We're, that's just the way life is. We know it because God has told us, don't be surprised. Don't be shocked at the way the world is. It's out to get you. It's, it's quiet at times. Everything seems peaceful. But it's like lying down with a tiger. You never know when it's going to rear up and take you. And last, we know truth. We live out our lives in this truth. It's based in the coming of God when he came in the flesh, when he came as the son of God, when he came as Jesus and the person of Jesus. We we that's that's where truth we became clear in our vision. 
We're, and this understanding, all these things, this understanding, he uses that word understanding, <clears throat> it's God's gift to us. Now, why do we know all these things? Three times, verse 18, 19, and 20, he's going, we know, we know, we know. Why do we know? What's the purpose of this knowledge? It has a particular goal. This knowledge has a purpose. And it's not just so that we can live our lives in reality. That's a good thing. But that's not the purpose of it. It's not so that one day we can go to heaven. That's a good thing. But that's not the ultimate purpose. And the reason for this knowledge lies in our very existence. It's life's ultimate quest. It's what we're going to strive. It's what we should be striving for every day of our lives. We're going to read verse 20 together. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true even in the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Look at this. We're going to finish this verse today, God willing. And me willing too. <laughs> but this, this phrase here, so that... We may know him who is true. This is our purpose. You want to know purpose in life? This is our purpose. The purpose of this understanding God has given us. God has given us the ability to think through the situation as the evidence is uh, presented to us. God has given us the ability to think, to think through it. And as God's gift. And there's a purpose for this understanding. Now we can understand. Now we've thought through. We understand some things. What's the purpose of that? So that. So that speaks a purpose. This is a marvelous little word I learned many, many, many years ago. But it really has helped me personally in my study of 1 John. I approached 1 John with some trepidation. I'd read it many times and it's just like, I'm not sure exactly what he's saying here. And so I read it as my, my study habit is, is just, just to read it and read it and read it and read it and think and read. And I came across that word, so that. Three times, it says it more than once, obviously, but three times he says, I'm writing this so that, for the purpose of. Here's the, the purpose I'm writing this book. It's what that word, so that, means. It's one word in the Greek. It's two words in the English. And you remember, I haven't said it in a few weeks, but do you remember the purpose? Why did John write this? So that, verse 1, we will have what? Yes, all together. Joy to the full. Very good. And so as I read this, if I'm not getting joy, I'm missing something. That's, that's the purpose. And the second one, chapter 2, verse 1, is so that we will not sin. And so if I'm using this book as an excuse to sin... I'm missing something in a big way. So I read this and it should help me not to sin. And the third thing is so that we will know we have eternal life. We know it. How do we know it? This is the scripture here. John wrote this so that we would know this. And so in the same way as we come to this passage, it's the same word. He says they've given us this understanding so that or in order that you will know him who is true. Now, as I said three times, 
we've come up with this word, we know, we know, we know, in verse 18, 19, and 20. And then at the second part of this verse, he says, no, again, he uses the word no one more time, but it's a different word. This particular no, the first three no's are knowing in your brain, it's up here, it's given to you, it's book knowledge, you've studied it, you can pass the test now. But this no is the knowledge of experience. And this is really where the light bulb comes on. And you know this is true. <laughs> you know this is true because when you have studied something, you know you really don't know it until you do it. Right? When you graduate from college, you have a degree, you have a lot of head knowledge. You know some things. You can write out the test. And some of you made straight A's. But you really got to know it when you went to work and started putting that into practice. And then you know it. And that's what, he, what he's saying here. These things come to light in our experience. And just as an example, just about the thing that, time that we, we know, we think that the, the world is benign. We think the world is nice and sweet and kind. Suddenly something happens to us. Something terrible happens in a flood, uh, some murder, some bad thing happens, cancer, whatever. And we suddenly know, know by experience, the world is not benign. The world is not nice. The world lies in the lap of the evil. We know it. We know it by experience. And we've experienced this practical life of Christ in our lives. We see how it works in our lives. Think about Jesus. Jesus displayed the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. He, explained, he displayed love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And you know when you've experienced that, when you've gone through your life and you've experienced joy, when you've experienced peace, when you experience patience, kindness, when it works in your life, you go, that's right. That's the way I'm supposed to live. And you know when you experience the opposite of these things, you know, you know. That's not the way to live. You know that's not working in your life. Being unpeaceful, impatient, unkind. You know that's, that's just, that just doesn't work. God hasn't created you to live that way. And so we're not supposed to, I was going to change up my words there, supposed to stop with book knowledge, with the reading of the Bible. And this is where I think we, we all struggle with. We read the Bible, and it's so beautiful, and it has such uplifting words, and it's so inspiring, and it's so nice. And we go through our Bible reading, and it's really, really good, and we stop. We don't put it into practice. We know these things are true because we put them into practice, or when we, we know that when we put it into practice, and we discover this works. This is how life is supposed to be. This is, this is the way I'm created to be. And then he says, we know him who is true. How? We know by practical experience. We know him who is true as we put these things in practice in our, in our lives. And this is of ultimate importance. I cannot stress this enough. I'm tempted to preach three sermons on it, but I already have. This is a repetition because John has repeated himself over and over, and so am I. This is of ultimate importance because, first of all, you are serving and coming to know 
a God or the true God. Your life is a reflection of the God that you're serving. Everyone lives by faith. I had a sermon on that. The song we just sang, Living by Faith. Everyone lives by faith. Believers and unbelievers live by faith. Everyone serves a God. Some say, well, what about atheists? Yeah, they serve a God. They serve the God of nothing. They serve the God of independence. They serve the God of self. And we have to be careful because we can serve that same God. Whether we consciously realize it or not, we go through life acknowledging there's something bigger and greater than me. We're always in search of something bigger and greater than myself. Sometimes it's health. People serve the God of health, serve the God of wealth. It might be intellect. It might be degrees. It might be college degrees. It might be science. It could be sports. It could be politics. Everyone lives for something and is looking for something greater than themselves. They're always in search of something bigger than themselves. They center their lives around something. And whatever you're centering your life around, that's God. That's your God. It could be good things. It could be your marriage. If that's the center of your life, your God is your marriage. We see this in every generation. You can go back thousands of years, but let's, let's bring it up close. Every generation has rose to meet something greater. They're searching for something greater than themselves. Go back to World War II. The World War II generation, they rose to meet a challenge of being attacked on two fronts from the West and the East. And the whole generation rose to this challenge. It's something greater than one man, greater than themselves. My mother tells stories about uh, victory gardens. Some of you might be old enough to remember victory gardens. I'm not. <laughs> but my mother told me about it. Because of the way the war was, there were so many farmers that went off to fight this war, who rose above themselves, gave their lives. And so they, they encouraged everyone to build a plant, a victory garden, so they could feed themselves, so that the food that was being grown here could be you know, sent overseas and feed the troops. And people did that. They grew gardens and they shared and they did what they had to do. Rose above themselves. My generation, the 60s and 70s. Yes, my hair used to be down to my shoulders. The peace movement. The, 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 uh, the songs of that era were um, protest songs against the, the uh, Vietnam War. And, and a generation rose up and just said, uh, no, we don't want this. And big crowds, you know, got together. and The peace sign and all this. And today, whoever it is, millennials, Generation X, whatever you are, I don't know. They're looking for something bigger than themselves. And they're usually looking right here. <laughs> they're looking for something bigger than themselves. And they're trying to find it in their phone here, their device. They're looking for something bigger. And so they search and they do things and they get together and they, we all do. Everyone does. And all these things can be a God in our life. If that's our focus, if that's the center of our life, that's our God. This means we either live a lie or we live a truth for truth. We either live out a lie 
or we live out truth. Further, we become like the God we serve. This is so important for us to realize. And that's as old as Psalms 115, verse 8. Psalms 115, verse 8 is in the context of idols. And he says, those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. Whatever your God is, you're going to become like that God. And that's why it's so important to continue to know the true God. Because if we have a false view or a skewed view of the God of the Bible, we're going to be like that God. Whatever the God that we're following, whether it is the true God with our warped view or the true God that we're growing in knowledge, and that's part of what we do all our lives is we'll never get to know God 100% correctly because, we, because he's far greater than us. But as we study him and learn him, we will become like the God that we're, that we're following. So God gives us this understanding so that we can grow in the knowledge of him. And we've seen this before. This John is circular, as I said. He's said it before. He's saying it again. He's summing up things. And you can really see it in uh, 1 John 2, verse 20 through 27. And I'm just going to buzz through this real quickly because we, just, we don't have time to re-preach this, this sermon, these sermons. But let me just touch on them real quickly. 1 John chapter, 20, uh, chapter 2, that's not 20, 2, verse 21 says this. I do not write because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie comes from the truth, you'll see the connection between what we've just read in 520 and, and 221. And then he goes on to say in verses 22 and 23, if you deny Jesus is the Christ, you're living a lie. If you say, no, Jesus is not the Christ. Well, here's the reality. You're living a lie. You're in a lie. You're living the, a life of a lie. And he says, if you acknowledge Jesus, that's the same as acknowledging God. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus and you look at Jesus and you acknowledge, OK, that's God. Now you're living in reality. And he goes on to speak that being in this this state of in God, being in God, remaining in him, living in him. This is how we we don't live in counterfeit living, but real life. And I'm telling you, I want real life. I don't want fake life. I don't want counterfeit living. And I've said this publicly before. If this is not real, if what we're following is not real, I want to go fly fishing in the Sipsi wilderness. That's where I'm going to be tomorrow. <laughs> I'd be there today if this is not real. Why am I here? Why are we here? Just pretending, having a good time. Maybe, maybe you just like fellowship. But you know this is real. I don't want counterfeit living. I want real life. And so knowing God, this is the centrality of Christian living. This is what it's all about. If you want to know what is life about, what is my purpose? Here it is. He tells you knowing God. You know, there's a lot of things Christians do and they don't do. Let me tell you this. That's not the center of your life. There's a list of good things to do and there's a list of things not to do. That should not be the center of your life. Doing good is not the center of your life. Evangelism is not the center of your life. Helping others benevolently is not the center of your life. Having a great marriage is not the center of your life. 
It's not teaching your children. It's not being a good example. It's none of those things. It's knowing God. That's the center of our lives. Now, as a result of that, these other good things will happen. I always have to put that in because people are going to say, well, he said not to have a good marriage. (laughs) I did not say that. I say that's not the center of your life. It's a result of the center of your life flowing over into your marriage, into your benevolence, into your evangelism, into your doing good. And you see this over and over. John John said this in the Gospel of John, uh, verse 17, uh, verse 3, he says this. Now, this is eternal life. This is what life is all about. This is true life. This is reality. That they know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ you have sent. That sums it up. Know God. Focus on that. That's where your center is. Paul said it too. First, uh, over in Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 17. I keep asking. This is God's prayer. Uh, John's God's prayer is Paul's prayer too. I keep asking. And this is over and over and over and over. I keep praying and praying and praying that God... The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? So that you can do good things, so that you can have a good marriage, so that you can... No. So that you may know Him better. It's a growth process. This is my prayer, he says. This is my prayer for you, that you'll know God, and you'll know Him better, and you'll grow in that knowledge. He says it in Colossians, a couple of places there. He says, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge. I like these bookend words here. Knowledge of His will. Through all wisdom and understanding so that, uh, that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. You'll live worthy of the Lord when you know Him and please Him in every good way. Bearing fruit and good work and growing in the knowledge of God. As you get to know Him and do things, you'll get to know Him. That's what he's saying. You know God. You do for Him. You get to know Him. You put it into practice. You'll know Him better. That's our goal. He goes on in chapter 2 of Colossians. He says, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, Jesus Christ. That's the goal. That's our focus. That's where it all is. It's not in the church. It's not in our things we do. It's in knowing God. That's where our center is. I want you to think with me as I thought through this, I thought. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. He says, God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness and let them rule. And those are two different words. I looked them up. Two different Hebrew words that are used also of idols. When you make something in your image, you make, you know, you create something that looks like you. God said, Let's, I'm going to create something that's like me. It's in my image and it's like me. It's in my likeness. And I got thinking about this. This is in how we think. It's how we act. It's what we do with our lives. God created us not so that, we're, so that we look like God, that we have two arms and two legs, as if God had two arms and two legs. I'm, I know he doesn't. But, but he created us so that we will be like him in how we think, we'll be like him in what we do, we'll be like him in how we treat one another. And you start thinking of many things. God, create, God was the only one who created, and we, people, are the only ones who can really create. No animal really creates. They do things instinctively, but they don't create. You never see the Mona Lisa 
in a monkey den. All right? You never see a Mona Lisa. Your dog doesn't, you know, you wake up one morning, your dog's painted a picture or he's built the, um, the what do you call it? Legos. Put the Legos together. No, the dogs don't do that unless you train them to do it. That's just the way we are creative. We are truly creative. We've, given the, we've been given this task to rule, to take care of the planet. That was part of what he said. Take care of the planet. Not save the planet. Take care of it. Make it prosper, he said. And so God is love and he's placed in us the, the ability to value and to esteem others. Only people can esteem others. Only people can love others. Animals do some things instinctively, you know, protectively, but they don't really love. The characteristics of God love are in us. Patience, kindness, delight in others, delighting in good. These are God qualities. The joy over truth and trust and protection and perseverance, they're all God qualities placed in us by our Creator. And these qualities are not to be lived in isolation. They can only be expressed in the context of one another. My kindness can only be seen in interaction with other people. My patience is primarily expressed in my patience with others. Trust is an action that I have to express toward a person. And I've said this before. It starts with the first person you see every morning. When you open your eyes, if someone's living in the house with you, those God qualities, that's what's supposed to be expressed to your wife, your husband, your children, your roommate, whoever you're living with. And if you're living by yourself, it's the first person you see when you leave your house. That this, the God qualities of your life are to be expressed toward people. Being in the image of God means we live out this God likeness toward each other. We see this in 1 John chapter 3. Verse 18, I don't know if I have, I, I, let me read them to you quickly. First John 3, verse 18, he says this, um, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Don't just say it. Don't just say it. Don't say, amen, good, that's a good lesson. That's wonderful. Do it. That's what he says. Chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, he says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us, made perfect in us. That's where it all, that's all, where it all fits. The question this passage in 520 asks is this, how central is God in your life? In a very practical, in a very everyday way, how central is God in your life? How focused is God in your life? And this verb, to know him, is to continually, day by day, know him. It's a day-by-day day process. It's a growth process. I'm experiencing this every day. It's not just growing in my intellectual knowledge. That's important. But it's taking that and putting into, into practice the life of Christ in my daily life. Practicing what you know. When you find yourself acting ungodlike. Anger, impatience, envy, jealousy, despair. And you catch yourself. What do you do? 
Slap yourself on the hand. I was thinking this morning as I was going over the, the notes here, I was thinking to myself, there was a time this week, and I, I was trying to remember the exact, the, the exact thing, and all I could remember was I was interrupted. I was interrupted by someone. It might have been you. I don't know who, who it was here. But it, it was, I was irked. <laughs> because I was doing something really, really important, and then someone really, really important came into my life. What am I supposed to do here? How am I supposed to do this? And I had to ask myself at that point, I said, how does God want me to act? What does God want me to do right now in this situation where it's not between a bad and a good thing? I wasn't choosing a bad thing over a good thing or a good thing over a bad thing. It was two good things were in my life. And I had to choose which, which do I need to do? What can I do here? And I really need to do this, but this person really needs me here. So what do I do? And my question was, how do, what does God want me to do in this situation? And it's not waiting till after the event is over and reflecting on it and spending some time in prayer and coming to repentance. That's fine. That's, all those things are good. But that's not what we're talking about. It's catching myself in the act of being ungodly and stopping it right then, right at that point, and changing on the spot and saying my attitude stinks and it needs to change right now. I don't need to pray about it. Prayer does nothing when God says, do it, just do it. You don't have to pray about it. Because God-centered living, a Christ-centric life, is putting a rein on my tongue when it begins to get out of control. At the beginning of it. Don't let it go. Put the rein on your tongue right now. Don't come back later and say, I wish I hadn't said that. I apologize. You, you catch yourself. You know it. You're a Christian. You know it's wrong as you're doing it. Stop it. That's what the Bible says. And that's Christ-centered living. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about some wonderful you know, thing that we do. It's like practical right now. This is what I do. I'm in this situation. I'm tempted to do this. God knows. I, I don't have to pray about this. I know this is wrong. Stop. God-centered living is stopping excuses like, that's who I am. That's just the way I am. That's the way I, I was raised. I can't help myself. God-centered living is saying, you need to be who you really are. Live out who you really are, not who you think you are, not who you were before you became a Christian. Who are you? I've done this a thousand times, I feel like. Who are you? And I need it myself. That's why I keep coming back to it. We are people in him, and we are in him who is true even in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. We are in him. We are living reality through him, in him. He is true. We live out our lives in him. We express our lives out of him. We live our lives out of God who is true, real, the right way to live. How do we do that? Because we've been taught, we've been trained, we see what the Word says. And when it says, be filled with compassion, we fill ourselves with compassion. You know, this is difficult and it's easy at the same time. It's difficult in the sense that we constantly must focus our thinking and align our, what I call God think. That's difficult. If you're not a Christian, you don't have to think. Just live your life. Go where your feelings tell you to go. Just do whatever. You just, you just float through life. 
Live and let live or whatever the things are. But a Christian has to think every moment, has to think. It t- and thinking takes work. Has to think these things out and say, is that the way I'm supposed to be? Is that what I'm supposed to do? It's difficult in that we have to correct ourselves. It's difficult in that we have to allow others to correct us. Others in our lives to teach us and help us. And that's hard to do sometimes to let someone else in your life and say, go ahead. Tell me what to do here. It's difficult in that there's this constant putting off and putting on. Just as I put on the cloak of compassion, it seems like the next minute I've dropped it down. I've put on another cloak of envy or malice or something. I've got to take that off. I've got to put back on this cloak of forgiveness. It's difficult in, in that often life is not a choice of right and wrong. It's a choice of two good things. That's difficult. Like I said, this past week I had two good things. What am I supposed to do? And here's where it's easy. God's Spirit continually tugs on our hearts, directing us what to do. I'm not talking about magic. I'm not talking about any mysterious thing. I'm just talking about you're going through life, and you're doing the wrong thing, or you're thinking the wrong thing, and, and God tells you. That's not this word. You don't hear something from the sky. You just know that's wrong. I'm treating that person wrong. I'm acting wrong. I have a bad attitude. That's God's spirit in you saying, don't stop that. Do this other thing. And so it's easy. God is constantly training you, teaching you through his word and through your through through him being in you that that's not the way to live. And it's easy in this way when we have these two good decisions. I have two good decisions. And this is where where I really where it boiled down to me this past week. I had two good decisions to decide on. And you know what I decided? I decided my attitude needed to be changed. I mean, it wasn't, I, I, I had to make a choice there. I might make the wrong choice. And I didn't need to fret over which is God's will, A or B. A is good, B is good. But should, it, well, I got, should I pray about this for a week? No. I said, in this situation, I'm being impatient. I can be patient. I'm living out frustration. I can live out peace. I had to change my attitude, and that was the easiest thing then. And then I decided, I think I decided, I don't, don't remember the details. <laughs> Boy, I'm getting old. But I think I decided that person needs me more than this thing needs me, because this thing can be done later on. But the attitude was easy, because I saw it. I'm being impatient. I'm letting this frustrate me. Stop. Live right. That's easy. This is our ultimate quest, to live a life knowing God. That's our quest, the ultimate quest. In 1605, a book was written, Don Quixote. I think that's how you pronounce it. And you, you, some of you may not have never read it. Look at this next picture here. I think it's in the next one. Yeah. You remember the guy? He thought he was a, a knight and he fought windmills. Some of you go, what? All right. You can look it up. It's a very long book. You're required to read it in senior English or something like that. I don't, I don't know. But this man, he thought he was a, he, he, he pretended to be what he wasn't. And he saw the windmills as these things, the, the monsters he had to fight. And he was a knight in shining armor. He really wasn't. And there's a lot of questions. So what, did, what, did this, what did this story mean? And basically, the story was that life it's just no purpose. There's no purpose in life. A play was adapted. A musical was played, uh, was uh, adapted from the story. Man of La Mancha. 
Maybe some of you have seen that. And basically that is saying that you prefer the glory of living a fantasy over the only reality there really is, death. That's the, that's the story. The story is I'm going through this life and it's just, I, you know, instead of me just going to work and getting up and having a boring life and live out a fantasy is far better. And avoid just thinking about the the only reality there really is in life, and that's death. That's all there is. It's kind of a sad philosophy, but a lot of people live that way. And so in the musical, there's a song that some of you, some of you older ones especially, you'll recognize this. Uh, Frank Sinatra sang it. Uh, Elvis Presley sang it. Andy Williams sang it. Some hip-hop artist maybe has come up with something. I don't know. I haven't checked it out. To live the impossible dream. But I want you to look at these words in light of what the book is actually about, is that there's no meaning in life. There's no meaning in life. It's just death. And so the, the song goes to dream. I'm not going to sing it. To dream the impossible dream, to fight the unbeatable foe, to bear with unbearable sorrows, to run where the brave dare not go, to right the unrightable wrong. I don't know how you know what's right and wrong if you don't believe in reality. To right the unrightable wrong, to love pure and chaste from afar, to try when your arms are too weary, to reach the unreachable star. This is my quest. This is my quest, to follow that star. No matter how hopeless, no matter how far, to fight for the right without question or cause, to be willing to march into hell for a heavenly cause. And I know if I only be true to this glorious quest, what's the story about? Just living out fantasy. That's what the story's about. And I know we can Christianize the story, the song, and we often do, and it's, and it's kind of good when you do that. But the story of my life is a fantasy. If I only be true to this glorious quest of living out a life in fantasy, avoiding the thought of death, that my heart will lie peaceful and calm when I'm laid to my rest. You think so? I don't. And the world will be better for this. How do you determine what's better if you have that philosophy? That one man scorned and covered with scars still strove with this last ounce of courage to fight the unbeatable foe and to reach the unreachable star. You can't do it. Just pretend. Just pretend. And then die and it's all over. That's life. And so we have to choose. Are we going to live in truth? Or in the lie. That's the world. It's a nice story. Read the story if you want to spend a few hours. Think about it. But that's 1605. The author was saying that's all life is about. It's just breathing in and breathing out until you can't do it anymore. That's all it is. And so as you're doing that, at least pretend something. Pretend something. Or we can live in truth. The lie is there's no meaning. There's no meaning except for myself, what I choose. I'll chase the wind. I'll fight the windmills. I'll center my life around myself. That's what it's all about. Or I can live in the ultimate truth, the ultimate quest to really know God, the true God. Let me end with this paraphrase further. We know absolutely 
that the Son of God came into this world. And his life presently affects the way we think, act, and live. He gifted us with the ability to think things through with the ultimate purpose that we may know him who is true through daily experience and practical living. Our lives are wrapped up in him who is reality, namely his son, Jesus Christ. He is the God of reality and truth and eternal life. And that's what our ultimate quest is all about. I encourage you to live that way this week. As you leave this morning, you will be challenged to live your life in reality. Someone's going to say something. Someone's going to do something. Someone's going to cut in front of you in traffic. Something's going to happen, and you're going to be tempted to live in the lie, live in the truth. And if you're living in the lie right now, you're living for yourself. There's There's only one truth. There's only one reality, and that's Jesus Christ. Come to him in repentance, in faith, be immersed in him, come into union with him, and begin to live this knowledge of God in your life. It works. It really works. If we can help anyone, our elders are here. They'll help you as we stand and as we sing this song.